Good morning. morning. And it's good to see you all this morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We love the beauty of your character, your methods, the way you run your universe. We ask that you, you enlighten our minds today, transform us to be like you, and open the avenues for this message to go forward. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And here's another email I received since the last time I was here. It says, just wanted to share with you what a wonderful God-inspired work you are doing, spreading the true, benevolent, and consistent message about the character of Jesus Christ and the Father. The Christian world is due for a revolution, and this would be one of the truths that must come to the fore, that God is love in his character, thought, and deed, and that is that it is all consistent. I'm a middle 40s male who has been a Seventh-day Adventist all my life. I am currently a Sabbath school guide direct, uh, Sabbath school guide instructor, a Pathfinder counselor, a deacon, and a proud and happy father of three beautiful uh, married children, uh, uh, three beautiful children and married to a God-given wife described in Proverbs 31. I am blessed in so many ways I cannot begin to describe. I, however, harbored a struggle deep within a conflict that had me challenging the very tenets of my faith and had me tongue-tied when talking to my children about God that loves us, but yet was an apathetic judge ready to pronounce judgment on sins. The struggle, was near, the struggle that nearly overwhelmed me was the image that I had of God the Father. It is the image that pervades Christendom thinking today, even in our own beloved Seventh-day Adventist Church. This imposing imperial dictator construct of a God who did not fit uh, just did not fit with the God who would send his own son to die in my place, even were I the only sinner on earth. It just did not work. This ideology of what I had been taught versus a God of love who would do anything to redeem me. After some friends suggested I take note of your Bible study classes online, I must admit I was it was like torrents of water to a parched and thirsty land. I soaked up the image of a God who loves me and whose character is consistent. Love engenders love, and I began to fall in love with my Lord and Savior once again. This message has saved my marriage, my family, my life, if you will. Here in California, the message of a transformational God of love is taking hold in the social and religious circles that I inhabit. It is just too bad that there is so much resistance in our own SDA church to this message of a truly loving God. I feel that many Christians resist because they want to worship a God that is in many ways like themselves, ready to judge others for their sins. All the while, they can justify this as not being judgmental because their God has already pronounced judgment on those they themselves are so quick to condemn. While obviously this is a deception that many of us live with, it is sad that we attribute to God the Father the exact opposite of what he really is. We do so much more damage in his name, we might as well advertise that we sell indulgences or have red crosses on our tunics. I am excited to share with others the message that I am learning of loving and and loving of my God who transforms my life into something that I never would have thought possible. Truly, we serve a wondrous, glorious God who is worthy of all our praise and honor. Thank you once again for your message of transformational God of love, the true picture of how our God really is. No sign, no more conflicts in Northern California. So, isn't that nice? See, and I get emails like this. You guys, I, I just share one or two a week with you guys. I get them coming in all the time and letters coming in from all over the world. This message really is transformational. All right, lesson this week, we're doing lesson number 11 in the lesson study guide, Christ and His Law, and the title this week is The Apostles and the Law. And the first paragraph says, with so much evidence for the continued validity of God's law, why do so many Christians argue against it? And just curiously, how many people actually read their lesson this week? Okay, good. For those that read their lesson this week, what evidence did the quarterly cite this week for the continued validity of God's law? 
And if you haven't read it, then the title will give you a clue, The Apostles and the Law. The, the, what, what evidence did they cite in the lesson this week for the continued validity? The, the evidence they cited uh, was the fact that the apostles did not argue or make reference to the fact God's law was done away with. So every, every day of the week, they had another apostle, Paul, Peter, John, James, and Jude, and they go through their book and say, notice, they didn't argue that God's law was done away with. Notice, they didn't argue that God's law was done away with. This is the evidence that they used this week. Now, certainly, it's true. Let's be very clear. The apostles definitely did not ever suggest God's law was done away with. But is this the best evidence available? In fact, think about it. What kind of evidence is this? The absence or negative. Well, it's the absence of negative depending on the evidence of another person's testimony, of another's understanding, of another's opinion. It is the evidence of basing your faith on what another has experienced and understood. Well, the apostle said it. The Bible said it. Sister White said it. Uh, and, and that kind of thinking. Well, we've got, a, we've got a text for it. They believe it. If they believe it, it must be right. So it's the evidence of somebody we esteem coming to a conclusion. And therefore, since they came to the conclusion uh, and they believed it and, and they were even inspired, well, then we should believe it too. Do you see any problems with this type of evidence? Okay, I'll throw you a quick one. You're a first century church and you've got the Apostle Peter coming to visit. He's the Apostle. And he doesn't think we should associate with uncircumcised fellows. Who are we to question the apostle, right? We shouldn't ask any questions. We should just go along because he's the apostle. Or should we question? Should we think for ourselves? Yes, exactly. So the purpose of the testimony of the apostles is not to tell you what to think. It is to stimulate you to reason, to evaluate the evidence for yourself, to examine the, the historical facts for yourself and come to your own conclusion in your own mind. That's why Paul actually wrote, actually wrote in, in Romans 14, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. We're to come to our own conclusion. But to use the testimony as the determining evidence as the determining evidence, undermines your own thinking, your own mental development. It is, it is absolutely valid to take the perspectives and opinions of others, use them to stimulate you to reason, think, examine the evidence, but then you are to come to your own conclusion so that it becomes your own opinion, not just, well, you know what my pastor said, my dad said, my cousin said, uh, the Apostle Paul said. Tim said. Tim said, oh yeah. Yeah, that, and I've, I've encouraged you. I've had people write me and they said, you know, I just had such a blessing from your, your lesson. I share it in my class, but I, but I don't give you credit for it. And I go, good for you. Don't give me credit for it. Understand the idea for yourself and make it your own idea and share it for yourself. Absolutely. Well, as we've learned in this class, our beliefs are influential in that. So two people can think for themselves and come to two different conclusions and both be right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Based on what they believe. Yeah. It's also, it's not the messenger that is important, it's the message that's important. That's exactly right. But to base our belief on the, you know, the attestations of another person, for instance, it is a weak argument, in my opinion, to say that red and yellow mixed together get orange because my art instructor told me so. Even if your art instructor was Michelangelo. That's a weak argument. 
It's a much better argument to say, my art instructor taught me this, but I have actually mixed the colors myself and know from experience it is true, or I've observed the colors being mixed and saw for myself that they make orange, or I've studied the wavelengths of light and I understand that visible light is between 400 and 700 nanometers and red is actually 650 nanometers, where yellow is 570 nanometers. And when you mix the two together, you get 590 nanometers and that wavelength of light is orange. Are you talking reflected or emitted light? Yeah, reflected light. Exactly. Exactly right. But do you see how when you understand that reality, you don't have to base it on somebody else's testimony? This is a much healthier way to understand reality. Here's here's a quote from one of our founders. It's about a book called Education, page 17. Every human being created in the image of God is endowed with a power akin to that of his creator. Individuality, power to think and to do. The men in whom this power, and I would say women, men and women, in whom this power is developed are the men who bear responsibility, who are leaders in enterprise and who influence character. It is the work of true education to develop this power, to train the youth to be thinkers, not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. You think about a reflector. You've got a reflector on your bicycle. What's the function of a reflector? It, yeah, what light does it have to give? None. None. I can't tell you how many people I know that have no light to give. They can only reflect light from other people. They have no concepts for themselves. No capacity for processing information. They can only regurgitate things they've been indoctrinated with. Instead of confining their study to that which men have said or written, let students be directed to the source of truth, to the vast fields open for research in nature and revelation. Now notice the the statement, uh, we are to develop the power to be thinkers. Notice that developing the power to think is an experience. You must experience this. And we are to study nature and revelation, the integrative evidence-based approach again. Scripture, science, and experience, again united. We find this over and over. Uh, Let them contemplate the great facts of duty and destiny, and the mind will expand and strengthen. Instead of educated weaklings, institutions of learning may send forth men strong to think and to act, men who are masters and not slaves of circumstances, men who possess breadth of mind, clearness of thought, and the courage of their convictions. You can't get this by simply knowing what other people thought. By simply saying, well, the Bible says. The Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's not enough. Does God want us to have our faith based on what others have thought out for us? Or to have thought it out for ourselves and come to our own conclusion? Isn't that a difference between servants and friends that he talks about? But because slaves don't understand their masters. The, John fifteen fifteen, beautifully. Exactly right. Think about the slave mentality. The master said it, I'm going to do it or else. The, the friend who can be a serving friend, is there a difference between friendly service and a serving friend? Are they the same thing? No, the friend actually understands you, your goals, what you want to achieve, and willingly engages uh, as a friend to help. That's the big difference, and that's what Christ has invited us to. This is out of 1888 materials, page 834. <clears throat> we say decidedly, every minute decidedly, We say decidedly, every minister of Jesus Christ must bind himself to the source of all light and power and he must not follow in the shadow of any other living man because there is Christ to whom he must become attached and he should not bind his heart to any human being and let man do his thinking for him. 
He is not filling the position in society or in the world if he simply accepts what his father has said and what his father or some great or good man in in past generations has done and sinks himself, his individuality in them. Some who think that they preach the gospel are preaching other men's ideas. Through some means they have come to the decision that it is no part of a minister's calling or duty to think diligently and prayerfully. It's no part of a minister's calling to think. You notice this? No, we have to do that. He accepts what other men have taught without asserting his individuality. Now has now Satan has his hand in all this work to narrow down the work of God. You see, we have a, we have a, we have a code. We have a creed. Oh, do we have a creed in our church, by the way? Yes. Do you do you know officially we don't have a creed? <laughs> No, we don't, because, because the same founder of the church said, we don't have our, the Bible and the Bible alone is our creed. So we have a set of fundamental beliefs. And if you look up the def, def, dictionary definition of a creed, do you know what the definition of a creed is? Yeah. Fundamental beliefs. <laughs> yes, that's what it is. So uh, Now Satan has his hand on those. We're never down the mind. Ministers of Jesus Christ are to be constantly receiving light from the source of all light. They are not to be simply receivers of other men's thoughts. They themselves not plowing deep into the mine of truth. If a minister is not working himself, digging for the truth as for hidden treasure, to find the precious jewels of truth, he is forfeiting his God-given privileges. He is not to put any human mind, any human intelligence between his soul and God. There is to come no authority from human minds that will be the least in the least degree interposed between him and God's authority to lead, to guide, and to dictate. But notice the balance now. Watch this next sentence, the balance. The minister of Christ should gather up every ray of light, every jot of strength and illumination from other minds whom God has blessed, but that is not enough. They must go to the fountainhead for themselves. God has given men reasoning minds, and he will not hold them guiltless if they trust in man or make flesh their arm. He wants you individually to come to him, to draw from him, to use the ability God has given you to understand the living oracles. If one man can see the light in examining Scripture, so may every true Christian have the right to read, to examine, to search the Scripture with, uh, with unab- unabated interest and gather light therefrom. <clears throat> Do you, what, what's the principle being described? Study, know, internalize, share. Think about it this way. How strong would you be if you had somebody go to the gym and work out for you? <laughs> I want to try that. Well, that's the same thing. If you don't exercise your mental faculties to study, to reason, to weigh the issues, to, 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 to go from cause to effect, to understand the various pr- principles involved, if you don't weigh it out for yourself... You just made me know... That, think about... All right, here's another example. You're taking a math class. And you've got the problems out before you. And one teacher comes along and writes down all the answers and you memorize the answers. And now you know all the answers. Another teacher actually lets you work the problems. Now you make mistakes in the way, but you go back and rework them until you actually understand the problems and how they work and you can come up with the answer. They, which way actually develops your mind and your understanding? If you, if, if you don't have somebody there to tell you the answers in the first way, you're, you're, you're hosed, you're lost. What's the answer? I know the answers because my teacher told me. That's what a lot of theology is. We've got our list of 28 answers. Well, why are they the answers? How'd you get to that answer? I don't know, I just have to know it. that's the answer. That's what the Bible says. Weaklings, educated weaklings is what that is. Yes, you still have a hand up? 
I just wanted to come back to that and not, not leave it in a negative context. I think, in my opinion, reflection is actually very important, but like a prism, how the prisms, how the, the facets are shaped affect how the light is reflected. And the more, the more that we study, understand, learn for ourselves, glean from others who have been given divine insight and be able to process that, it adjusts our prisms to be able to more effectively reflect the true light and love of God. So See, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, just let me take a little issue with how you're saying that. Okay. Because I don't think you're describing reflection at all. I think you're describing processing and reilluminating. Okay, you've taken in light, you've processed it, you thought about it, and then you shine it back out again. That is not the same thing as reflecting. A prism doesn't just reflect the light, it it divides the light. It does something to the light. Okay? It shines it out in a new way. It comes out as a rainbow now. So so that's not just a reflection anymore. So I'm gonna. So I, I. So I think you're going down the right track. I think the word reflection, though, really means that's all it does. It just reflects it back. It's like a in a static context. It's certainly yes. negative. Yeah. So, but I like how you parse that. That was good. Yes. I think the example that you gave in the math class is really important. Beyond that, because if you learn just these problems and this answer, you can't really go out and apply it because everything that you come with up against outside of math class is going to be just a little bit varied and you're only going to know that one problem and that one answer. And I think that same thing happens very much to us spiritually. We only memorize these concepts that we don't grasp the process, we don't grasp the formula, we don't grasp why, so we can't take it out and really pull our life together in a coherent Exactly. And this is what I teach my patients. Uh, if you go to the gym and work out in the gym and build up some muscle strength, are you restrict? once you have the muscle strength, are you restricted to only lifting weights in the gym? Or can you use the muscle strength in all kinds of activities? You see? But you have to get the strength before you can use it anywhere. Same thing with your mental capacities and strength. Once you build the mental capacity and strength, you can use it in a wide variety of areas. Okay? But you've got to build it first. Yeah. Um, so I, I will say again what I've said in here over and over again. I am not here to tell any of you what to think. I'm here to challenge you to think, to stimulate you to think, uh, so that you can develop your own God-given ability to reason and think and discern for yourself. So what is the danger, though, if we believe based on what others have concluded without thinking it through for ourselves and understanding for ourselves the reasons for things? What's the danger in that? Well, I'm going to shock you with this next quotation. <laughs> maybe. Maybe some of you have read it. This next quotation is uh, quite astounding. It's out of Second Testimonies 129. But it describes people who don't think, who just accept authority, leaders who have studied, accept the opinions of others for their own thoughts. And this is what happens. If we mistake the wisdom of man for the wisdom of God, we are led astray by the foolishness of man's wisdom. Here's the great danger of many in and there's a blank. You know how they leave a blank because they don't say where it is that we could say maybe many in college, Dale? I don't know. Um, we fill in ourselves there. Uh, they have not an experience for themselves. Notice again, that piece of that integrative approach, have to experience it for yourself. You have to experience thinking. They have not an experience for themselves. They have, been, they have not been in the habit of prayerfully considering for themselves with unprejudiced, unbiased judgment questions and subjects that are new and that are ever liable to arise. They wait to see what others will think. If these descend, dissent 
That is all that is needed to convince them that the subject under consideration is of no account whatever. Although this class is large, it does not change the fact that they are inexperienced and weak-minded through long yielding to the enemy and will always be as sickly as babes, walking by others' light, living by others' experience, feeling as others feel, acting as others act. They act as though they had not an individuality. Their identity is submerged in others. They are merely shadows of those whom they think are right. Unless these become sensible of their wavering character and correct it, they will all fail of everlasting life. Did you hear that? They will all fail of everlasting life. Wow. They will... Why? They will be unable to cope with the perils of the last day. They will possess no stamina to resist the devil, for they do not know that it is he. Someone must be at their side to inform them whether a foe or a friend is approaching. They are not spiritual. Therefore, spiritual things are not discerned. They are not wise in those things which relate to the kingdom of God. Neither young nor old are excusable in trusting to another to have an experience for them. Said the angel. This is a quote from scripture. Cursed is the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his arm. A noble self-reliance is needed in the Christian experience in warfare. Wow, isn't that powerful? See, what happens if we let others do our thinking is it damages your mind. It makes you weak. You, You lose the capacity for discernment. So why, why is a person cursed if they do that? Or maybe what is the curse? Because the truth, a lie, lies this close to the truth most of the time. And you'll fall for the lie almost every time if you, do, if you don't think for yourself, you follow what other people say. It's, it's rarely ever extremely noticeable. But what happens to you if you follow what other people say? You become weak-minded. There you go. This is the cause and effect. You become cursed by the failure to exercise. What, what's the curse of a person who sits on their couch, watches TV, and eats a pizza and potato chips seven days a week and never exercises? What, is there a curse in doing that? Yeah. What is the curse? You become, your muscles atrophy. You become weak. You become an, an, an invalid eventually. And you eventually die young. There is a curse to this. And this is the curse of allowing others to do your thinking for you. You actually lose your individuality, your ability to reason and think. Your capacity for decision-making and self-governance are lost. It's not an infliction from God on high in, in imposing something upon you. It's the consequence of failing to exercise the abilities God has given you. So having said all of this, we started out with this question about the evidence for the continued validity of God's law. And they were citing the evidence of the, of the apostles' testimony, which is something we should take. But then we take it and we reason it through for ourselves. We examine the evidence. We examine why the apostles didn't say that God's law was done away with. We don't just accept, well, the apostles said it, so it must be true. You see the difference? Yes. And so with all that said then, what is better evidence that God's law is not annulled nor ever shall be than the fact that the apostles never said it was. What's better evidence? The context of understanding what the law is, the true law. So some, uh, I agree. So anybody want to tell us what that is and why it's not an oath? The law of God's unselfish love. The basis on the universe is the basis of life. It's the basis of Did everybody hear that? God's law is the expression of his character of love, which is the protocols or, or template upon which the cosmos is built to operate, the principles upon which life is constructed. So can we give some specific examples of this law? 
I have a list of them bulleted in, in the notes, but what, what are examples of God's law? Respiration. Okay, respiration, which is a, is a expression of the law of love. The law of love is the principle of giving. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide. Plants give back oxygen to you. A never-ending circle of giving, which is the law of love constructed right into the, uh, to the fabric of reality. And so this is a law. It's a law you have to breathe. Okay, so law of love is one of them. Law of liberty. I won't go into that one today. It's on our DVD set, the blue one out there. Um, but you've, you've, it's in the, could it be the simple book too? But it's a law also, how relationships work. You violate liberty, love is damaged, rebellion is instilled, individuality is destroyed. What about law of worship? In psychiatry, this is called modeling, but we actually change, become like that, which we spend time watching and, and worshiping and adoring. It actually changes neurobiologically and physiologically and characterologically. It's a law. How about the law of sowing and reaping? Is that a law? You reap what you sow? Not just in the garden? Yes. How about the law of truth? Truth heals and sets free. Is it a law that truth heals and sets free? It is, absolutely. If you've ever been in a situation where you were believing a lie and the truth came, what peace and freedom did you get? Or clarity. Or clarity, yeah. How about the laws of health? We already mentioned one of those. Laws of nature, gravity, thermodynamics, physics. How about law of strength is acquired by effort or exercise? This was one we were talking about here of our mental strength. It is a law of God that strength is acquired by effort. You will not get strong if you don't exert yourself on any aspect. Will you get strong in physical strength if you don't exercise, if you don't exert yourself? Will you get strong mentally if you don't exercise? Will you get strong in your ability to love others if you don't exercise the ability to love others? Will you? No. This is that experience portion of the, of the integrated approach. We understand God's law, then what difference does it make for us to understand his law like this? Because his law is a reflection of his character. Yes, and what difference does it make for us to understand the validity and that it can't be done away with or it, it hasn't been done away with? So why is it that God's law has not been done away with? Why? What's the reason? Because the apostles never said it was. That's why. <laughs> is that why? It's not arbitrary. It's not a, a statement out of the air. It's... And, what, and what would be the consequence of doing away with the law? Think it through. Non-existence. Bingo! The destruction of the universe. These are the protocols upon which all the fabric of the cosmos exists. And to do away with it destroys the universe. It can never be done away with. How many of you were taught this coming up in the church? How many understood it coming up in the church? But I know the texts. <laughs> that wasn't the result of the committee. The committee said something. Yes. The lesson states, uh, as a result, they claim the Ten Commandments are not obligatory for those under the New Covenant. Are the commandments obligatory to those who are under the New Covenant? Those who have been saved by grace. Are the commandments obligatory? Well, or obligatory, however you want to say that. Uh, this is out of 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. And so in answer to the question, are the commandments ob- obligatory? Here's what Paul might say, and you answer, the, answer with me. Are they or not? We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous. 
But for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which of course, God will blessed God, which he entrusted to me. What do you think? What do you think it means the law was not made for the righteous, but for all that wicked? Yes. I was just thinking about how you don't have to be told if it's already a part of how you live. The reason that the law is, is stated that way is because... Um, the people who don't understand the way life works need to be told and, and directed to understand and help to see that they're out of harmony with that. But the people who do understand those things, they're living by that anyway. They don't need to be, I mean, they're already a part of that way of life. They don't need to be having the MRI scanner say you're sick. Okay, so you notice she threw in the end, have the MRI scanner say you're sick. Okay, for those who didn't catch it, she's an, uh, making an analogy that the commandments are like the MRI scanner, the diagnostic instrument to expose sin. The law was given in, in Romans 5 so that sin might increase or might abound or that we might see sin more clearly. Uh, we wouldn't know what sin was except for the, for the efficacy of the law. The law exposes. We wouldn't know we had a tumor along if it wasn't for the MRI. The MRI exposes it. But does the MRI get you well? Does it fix anything? No. How about if you work really hard not to have a tumor when you go in the scanner? Does it help? No, this is the problem when, with trying to, to be under the obligation of the law. Got another, got another, another quote here. Go ahead. Back uh, when we were talking about Christ and the crucifixion and how Satan could go up and he could catch angels coming in and out of the courts of heaven, he, previous to that, could try to twist things and they might stop and listen. But after full truth came apparent that he was selfishness and death and would go so far as to kill the Son of God, then truth was fully revealed and they didn't want anything to do with him because they could see his ugliness and the destruction of that selfishness. That then, so the, the sin was no longer even a temptation. was not even, don't listen to me, don't talk to me about the sin because I can see the truth about that. Yeah, what, what, I, love what you, I love this perspective you're helping us to elevate our minds to see. Um, if you'd like to read some about this in the uh, first um, chapter of... Um, Patriarchs and Prophets, Why Sin Was Permitted, in chapter It Is Finished and Desire of Ages. Both of them will expand on this very idea. But in Scripture, there's Christ said to his, his apostles, um, it, it is, uh, now is the judgment of this world. Now the uh, prince of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all unto me. Notice, the prince of the world will be cast out. Cast out. By the lifting up of Christ who is drawing all. And, there's, and, and most of your Bible translations say all men, but the word men is supplied. It's actually not in the Greek. He's, he's drawing all. And, and, and if you put the Colossians together, all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. He's drawing the entire universe, as you say, back to God. Angels long to look into these things. We're a spectacle. Theater to angels and to men, 1 Corinthians 4, 9. So we, I, there's biblical foundation for this idea you've put out there. So how, what, is, what does the cross of Christ, lifting him up and what he went through... How, cast Satan out of. That's exactly right. And so why was Satan's movements restricted? In the book Desire of Ages, it expounds on this casting out and it says up to that time, you know, Satan could harass the angels coming in through. But after that time, his movements were restricted. He no longer had access to the heavenly beings. Why? Because God put a force shield around earth now and he tries to go, and hits his force shield and can't get off earth? No. 
What restricts him? Truth. Well, no willing recipient. There you go. The truth, the intelligent beings lost all sympathy. Satan revealed himself as a murderer at the cross. Sympathy for him was lost in the intelligent beings in heaven. So when he would attempt to approach them, it's exactly as she said, talk to the hand, we're not listening to you. There was no mind willing to hear anything Satan had to say outside of planet Earth after the cross. Only on planet Earth now are there people willing to listen to Satan's view of God. That's why he still has activity going on here because there's plenty of willing recipients to listen to his distortions. And that's where the battle is. This battle between Christ and Satan happens right here. Are you so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that nothing can move you out of it? Are you still open to some of those distortions and misrepresentations of God that are taught by the devil? Well, next paragraph states, Second, others are so convinced that the Sabbath is not binding on Christians that in order to justify this position, they claim that all the commandments have been crucified with Jesus on the cross. These two ideas, the one... It says, as a result, they claim the Ten Commandments are no longer obligatory for those under the New Covenant. And the second one I just read, what, has the, what have the authors taken these two ideas together to try and do? What have they done? And what have they actually done? As I read it, what they've done is they've substituted the truth of God's law of love, design parameters, and so forth, how life is built to operate, uh, the blessings of freedom we have when we bat- live, live in harmony. That person that we talked about earlier who sits on their couch all day, eats potato chips, pizza, Big Macs and fries, never exercises, they become obese and deconditioned. Do you understand they are n- they've lost freedom? They don't have the freedom to walk on a hike up the side of Lookout Mountain. They don't have the freedom to bend over and lift and get inside. They're they, they, they restricted by their condition. Freedoms have been lost. Do you understand when they come back in harmony with God's law, live in harmony with the way he designed us, that their weight drops, their, their muscle strength increases, their vitality and energy improves. They gain freedom. Freedom is found inside God's design for life. And so they've taken this, this beauty of God's law of love, his design for life, the freedoms that we have, and they've given us false reasons for the law that abuses and injures people who believe this lie. It hurts people. What does the word obligation mean to you? Do you feel freedom under that word? No. Does obligation connote a sense of coercive pressure, a burden, do it or else? An outside force of coercive yeah. pressure. Here's another historic view out of a book called Christ Object Lessons. The first quote is Christ Object Lessons, page 97. And then the second quote is Signs of the Times, July 22, 1897. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely, because he is required to do so, will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not obey. Think that through. The person who is keeping the commandments under obligation is a disobedient rebellious, unruly, non-obedient person, even though they're obeying the commandments, according to this author. When the requirements of God are accounted a burden because they cut across human inclinations, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. They're not even Christian if they're doing, they're keeping the commandments under obligation. wonder if it's a Christian teaching to teach people we're obligated to keep the commandments. Hmm, you could argue that's not even a Christian teaching. They're not Christian. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. Ah, notice the difference. 
It springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. This, this will lead us to do right because it is right, because right doing is pleasing to God. Why do we do right? Because we're obligated. No, because it's actually right and it makes sense and we want to do the right thing. Here's another quote, the second one. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. By such a one, service is looked upon as drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully in the love of God. It is a mere mechanical performance. If he dared, such a one would disobey. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any time in bitter murmurings and complaints. Such service brings no peace or quietude to the soul. They would obey if they could, but they can't because if they do, what happens? There's a record made in heaven and they'll get punished unless they get the blood of Jesus to pay for that sin that they just did that they really wanted to do anyway. This was Paul prior to his conversion when he thought being righteous, this is what he thought righteousness looked like prior to his conversion. Righteousness is looking at your neighbor's wife and lusting after her and really wanting to go over and rape her, but choosing not to, but really wanting to. But then he said, the, the commandment examined me. And, and the commandment he cited, which commandment did he cite that examined him and he realized what a wretched man he was? Which commandment? Anybody know? The 10th commandment. And he came out, that shot not covered, and he realized, whoa, it's not about avoiding the bad behavior. It's about not even having the desire in the heart. So if I desire it in my heart and long for it, there's still something wrong with me. I'm still sick. See, and this is why this author said that it, true obedience is the outworking of a principle within. It springs from love of righteousness. In the heart. It's a heart transformation. Doing the right behavior with a heart that really wished to do the other thing is not obedience. It's not even Christian. That's obligation. That's not Christian. Now, we can use the word obligated in a way that could connote a right way of understanding, but I don't think that's the way they were doing it. For instance, we could say that we're, we're all in this room obligated to breathe if we want to live. We could say that. That's, Couldn't that's we? more what I was thinking. If we look at the commandments as we taught in this class, that it's more a description of how you look after you have been converted and transformed. And if we have been truly transformed... To be like Christ, we are obliged to look exactly like the law states. But again, not as a... If we understand it rightly, yes. But how about if we just understand we have to breathe because we're obligated. It's an obligation. We must do it. But we don't understand any other reasons for it other than the obligation. In order, we must do or else. Our attitude about breathing actually might change. Rather than the natural and enjoyable function, we might come to resent it. Why should I have to breathe? Why can't I just live without the need to breathe? It's so restrictive. I can't go underwater. I can't go out of space without a spacesuit. This is just unfair. God has made an unfair universe. We limit our liberty. Yes. With the, just the mental perspective shift of being under obligation. Only by understanding God's law in its right light, the design programs for life, do we set people free to be transformed by God's grace? Sunday's lesson. It asks us to read several passages out of Romans. So I'll read those to you really quick. Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Romans 6.14. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. Romans 7.4. So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. And Romans 3.31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So, I've read the text that they've asked us to read. Tell me what they mean. 
Remember, reading scripture is not enough. We have to first determine what the scripture said, but then the next big question is, what does the scripture mean? And the third question after that is, how does it apply to my life? Because you know, you understand that not all scripture actually applies directly to your life. Right? Yeah. So it's, what does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply to my life? So what do these texts mean? Last paragraph says this. For those who don't understand the concept of justification by faith, Paul may seem to be contradicting himself. In the same breath, he claims that the Christian is not under the law, yet the same Christian is obligated to keep the law. The problem is solved when we remember that God demands righteousness from those who claim to be in relationship with him. The standard, and you should ask the question, I don't disagree, you should ask the question, why does God demand righteousness? Why is the question? Does God demand righteousness? Why? Which lens are you looking through? Why does a doctor demand that you breathe? He demands it. Why? You see? Um, God demands righteousness from those who claim to be in relationship uh, with him. The standard of righteousness is his law. However, when people measure up against his law, they fall short and are therefore condemned by the law. If the law were the means to salvation, then none would have any hope of eternal life. The hope of the Christian is not found in the law, but in Jesus Christ, who not only kept the law perfectly, but through God's miraculous power allows believers to share in his righteousness. This is all true, if you understand it rightly. The Christian can now serve the law of God with free conscience because Christ has taken away the law's condemnation. How has Christ taken away the law? Why has Christ, I mean, what, what, what actually transpired that the condemnation was taken away? The grace that comes through Christ does not release us from the law, but rather compels us to obey it. I looked up on Wikipedia the, the, the definition for justification. This is the definition given for justification for Protestant Christianity. Justification in Christian theology is God's act of removing the guilt and penalty of sin while at the same time declaring a sinner righteous through Christ's atoning sacrifice. In Protestantism, righteousness from God is viewed as being credited to the sinner's account through faith alone without works. That succinctly says what's commonly taught in much of Christianity, including our own university here teaches this. this they, would, they would just give a stamp of approval to that statement right there. Do you understand this statement? This de- definition of justification is based on imposed imperial law construct. Not based on design law. That's what it's based on. This is the classic view, summed up nicely. And much of our own theology has been tainted by this imperial law construct. Here is a description of genuine justification written by one of the founders of our church. And I'm going to give you two quotes. This first one's out of Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890. It does not use the word justification, but it, dis- defi- it, it actually describes it happening. I'll let you tell me where you hear justification. The second quote says it explicitly. So it actually uses the word justification. But here's the first quote. Christ came to save fallen man, and Satan with fiercest wrath met him on the field of conflict. For the enemy knew that when divine strength was added to human weakness, man was armed with power and intelligence and could break away from the captivity in which he had bound him. Satan sought to intercept every ray of light from the throne of God. 
He sought to cast his shadow across the earth that men might lose their true views of God's character and that the knowledge of God might become extinct on the earth. He had caused truth of vital importance to be so mingled with error that it had lost its significance. The law of Jehovah was burdened with needless exactions and traditions. God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. So I'm going to pause there. What do you think happened to God's law that this was the consequence? It was represented as a set of rules imposed. This is what happens. I'll read this. The law of Jehovah was burdened with needless exactions and traditions, and God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. He's the enforcer, the cosmic executioner. Do this or else. This is how it was represented. He was pictured as one who could take pleasure in the suffering of his creatures. The very attributes that belong to the character of Satan, the evil one represented as belonging to the character of God. Jesus came to teach men of the Father to correctly represent him before the fallen children of the earth. Angels could not fully portray the character of God, but Christ, who was the living impersonation of God, could not fail to accomplish the work. The only way... How many other ways are there besides the one I'm about to read you, according to this author? None. This is the only way in which he could set and keep men right was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. That men might have salvation, he came directly to man and became partaker of his nature. You notice he didn't say a thing about a legal penalty here, did it? No. Did you hear justification here? Tell me where you heard justification. Set men right. That's exactly right. Justification means setting right. And so it's just described here. The only way to set men right, to justify, to put us right, was to do what? So justification means setting right. Then the question is, what was wrong that needed to be set right? Our view of God and our character nature. Christ came to set right man by revealing the truth to set us right in our understanding and attitudes and relation to God and to cure the infection of fear and selfishness, replacing and writing the law upon the heart and mind, the law of love upon the heart and mind. So that's what he came to do. We are actually set right literally. We become partakers of the divine nature and so forth. As we come to the right understanding of God, we're restored to trust because our natural heart at birth is enmity against God. We're fear-ridden, we're self-centered, we're watching out for self. When we see the truth as Christ is revealed, we come to trust God. Our heart goes from distrust to trust. And that was what Abraham did. He believed or trusted God or had faith and he was then recognized as being righteous. He was set right with God because his heart went from alienation to trust. And so when we come to trust God, we're set right with him. And as we open the heart, because now we trust him, we open our heart to him, the spirit is poured in, and he takes all that Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature. And so here is, again, another description, and it says it explicitly in the end. Romans, uh, this is Desire of Ages 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. Pause. Somebody tell me why. Why does the law require this? Because that's how life is created to operate. For the same reason the law of respiration requires you to breathe. Same, same thing. Exactly the same. The law requires it because that's how life is. If you're not that way, you can't live. That's why it requires it. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life and 
developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are past through, what do you think gives us remission of sins that are past? Yeah, that, that's what the quote says. Dean's got it exactly right. Historically, what gives us the, the historical imposed model, we get forgiveness through what? Through the blood payment. The legal payment that was made in our behalf, and we claim the merits of Christ, we get forgiven. But that's not what it says here. It says, forgiveness of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. No payment at all. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine, a good fabric of spiritual strength. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Quoting Romans 3, 26. So that clearly tells us that the learning and the building and the changing and the development continues after translation. There's no question. We, for all eternity future, we continue. God is infinite. We're finite. We never come to the point that we come to a place we stop learning, advancing, and growing. But you notice what justification here is. It is being set right in mind, heart, character, being put back actually in condition, in your condition, to be in harmony with God and his methods. Being set right. And that starts with our conception of God so that we trust him. And then finishes with our actual condition of being, that we are like him in character. So Paul is saying, the law is the protocols upon which life is built. We are born out of harmony and thus in a terminal state. The written law was given to help us realize our condition to diagnose us as such. Those who have accepted the truth about God as revealed in Jesus and trust and in trust open the heart are reborn with Christ's motives, methods, and principles in their hearts. Thus they are set right with God and are no longer out of harmony with him. They are justified. Therefore the law no longer condemns them because they live in harmony with it. So how did Christ take away the law's condemnation? How? By curing the condition. By developing a perfect character. There's nothing to condemn. What does the law of respiration say about a person who hangs themselves with a noose? The law of respiration condemns the person hanging by a noose. What is necessary to take away the condemnation? You have to take away the noose. You have to put him back in harmony with the law. Would hanging some other person with a noose take away the condemnation of the person you found hanging by a noose? Well, this person hanging by a noose, he's, he's condemned by the law. Let's hang this person, and then we, he won't be condemned anymore. Does that really work? No. What's necessary is to put the person back in harmony with the law. The idea of penal substitution, I'm going to tell you, is a lie. And I think really as a young person growing up in the church, I struggled with that. How did Christ dying really change me? How did it change my guilt? I think that, I mean, that's hard to make that extrapolation. Like you say, how does hanging one person bring life back to the person who was hung? I struggled with that. Yes, it, 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 under the imperial dictator view, it makes no sense at all. Under design law, we understand just what I read. Hey, we couldn't actually develop it. Christ came and did what we could never do. And now he imparts that to us. That makes beautiful sense. Um, Tuesday's lesson first paragraph 
And it just goes on to say in the first paragraph that John talks about all the books he wrote and goes on to say that uh, if John was so close to Christ, uh, John would have known if Jesus had set aside God's law. Again, why does the lesson go on uh, about how the apostles did not set aside God's law? Because they are viewing it as a set of rules and we must appeal to some authority to prove that it wasn't set aside. You notice how they don't argue anywhere. The apostles never argued for the law of gravity to be done, that was done away with. They never, they never make those because they don't. Because when you view God's laws, the, the, the laws upon which life is built, you don't have to appeal to this type of, of, of uh, argument. It's self-evident. The reason they appeal to this argument is because they've accepted the lie that came from the conversion of Constantine and the Roman imperial view of God's law that it's a bunch of rules by the cosmic dictator and he runs the universe like an emperor runs Rome. This is out of Education 108 and 109. By the laws of God in nature, effect follows cause with unvarying certainty. The reaping testifies to the sowing. There is no pretense and tolerated. Men may deceive their fellow men and may receive praise and compensation for service they have not rendered. You understand what she's saying? You can trick people into thinking you did a good work, but you haven't done it and get praise for it. But in nature, there can be no deception. On the unfaithful husbandman, that's the farmer, the harvest passes sentence of condemnation. If you haven't plowed your field, if you haven't planted seed, if you haven't fertilized, if you haven't watered, uh, when harvest time comes, the harvest condemns you. There's nothing to be reaped. You see? And in the highest sense, this is true also of the spiritual realm. The highest sense. It is in appearance. Now get this sense. I'm going to ask you, what does this mean? I want you to explain this next sentence. It is in appearance, not in reality that evil succeeds. How does evil succeed in appearance, but not reality? Nobody gets away with it. Nobody gets away with it. Why? Because God has his angels. He's keeping perfect record. And one day you're going to face the judge and he's going to make you pay, baby. Is that why? Sowing and reaping. Let me keep reading. The child who plays truant from school, the youth who is slothful in the studies, the clerk or apprentice who fails, uh, fails the service or the interest of the employer, the man in any business or profession who is untrue to his highest responsibilities may flatter himself that so long as the wrong is concealed, he is gaining an advantage. I, I cheated on this exam, and I didn't get caught. I got, I, I'm getting a better deal here, right? Mm-hmm. But that is not so. He is cheating himself. The harvest of life is character. And it is this that determines destiny, both for this life and for the life to come. The harvest is a reproduction of the seed sown. Every seed yields fruit after its kind. So it is with the traits of character we cherish. Selfishness, self-love, self-indulgence reproduce themselves, and the end is wretchedness and ruin. He that sows to the flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. He that sows to the spirit shall of the spirit reap everlasting life. Galatians 6, 8. Love, sympathy, and kindness yield fruitage of blessing, a harvest that is imperishable. And what kind of law is being described here? Design law, natural law. Uh, This is not an an imposition by somebody in authority. This is how life is actually constructed to operate. God respects your freedoms. You can choose the things that you do with yourself. But those choices react back upon you and change you. You can choose to participate with God in the plan of salvation or reject God in the plan of salvation. It is your choice that will determine what is happening within you. I guess I want to finish up with uh, Wednesday's lesson.
talk about uh, one book in the New Testament attributed to James in the last sentence of the first paragraph. It says, again, if Jesus had intended to abrogate the divine law, his own brother certainly would have known it. Could Jesus abrogate the divine law? Not and have the universe continue. I don't know whether he could do it and destroy the universe. I would think all-powerful God probably could do that. But he wouldn't be the God of the character that Jesus revealed, nor would the universe continue as God made it. That's what makes him God. He has the ability and chooses not to. Destroying the law destroys the very fabric of reality and destroys everything. But this many Christians fail to realize. Thus, they have arguments like in the quarterly about Christ whether Christ intended to abrogate the law or not abrogate the law, the entire argument is already in the wrong playing field because once they finally agree that Christ did not abrogate or set aside the law, they still are operating under the false mental world where his law could have been set aside. You see, you see the problem? Oh, it's intact, but, but he could have done it. And this is a classic. With Adventists, you ever want to play the game with Adventists? You can play this game with Adventists very easily on the Sabbath issue. They will say things like, nowhere in Scripture... <clears throat> Do we find anywhere where God changed the holiness of Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday? And we will only do what Jesus has said. And if, only if God changes the holy day. The church can't change the holiness. Only God can change the holiness. Have you heard these arguments? You say, great. So one day Jesus comes. And he says, you Adventist, you people have been faithful and true. The commandment-keeping people that I prophesied about, you have been faithful to my... You're right, I never change the day. But I am the creator God, your Savior, and I'm here, and today I'm changing the holiness from Sabbath to, to Sunday. To make it easier for you. To make it easier for you, yes, or whatever. So that, so that we can all get along and have, have ecumenical uh, relations now. So w- will you actually do what you've always said and follow uh, your, your Savior? Because I am changing the day from, 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 from Sabbath to Sunday in holiness. Which sounds like a scenario that's been predicted to us. You see, if you believe this idea that he can change it, then what's the problem here? See, it really throws them into a world of hurt. They can't figure that out. But we understand that the Sabbath is holy based on its historic roots. It was created and built holy. He would have to unbuild the creation week and unbuild his universe to actually change the day. Yeah, it's not going to happen that way. That's right. I love the way she ain't going to happen. I love that. That's right. Uh, Okay. This is the reason many people struggle, though. And then last paragraph, it says, Misunderstanding Paul's teaching of the law, some argue that James and Paul are opposed to each other regarding the role of, of law. The major point of contention is over the place of works and salvation. Paul declares that we are saved by grace through faith apart from works, while James emphasizes that faith and work without works is dead. These statements are not contradictory. James is merely expressing in a forceful manner what Paul said numerous times about grace not nullifying the law. What is the understanding of the relationship between faith and works? And the reason many people struggle with this is because they're operating under that dictator law view. If my penalty is paid and nothing I can do adds to the payment, then my salvation is obtained totally by grace and I access that through faith. And if I say I must do good works to achieve salvation, then I'm adding something to what the payment that Jesus made for me and that's salvation by works and I can't do that. You've heard this argument, right? This is, this is where they get stuck. So my works don't do anything. It's all paid for by Christ. All sins, path, he paid the whole thing. My works, mm-mm, no. But if you come back to the law, which is the design upon which life is constructed, it all makes perfect sense. Christ singly and alone revealed the truth to destroy the lies and win us to trust and develop the perfect character 
eradicated the infection in the humanity he assumed and cured what was wrong with our condition. Yet we still have to accept the truth, choose to trust God, partake the remedy, and follow the treatment plan of our Savior. Now, let me ask you a couple questions. In accepting the truth, are we the source of truth? In choosing to trust God, are we generating his trustworthiness? No, we're not the source of his trustworthiness. We're choosing to accept. In taking the remedy, do we create the remedy? No. Do we add to the remedy by taking it? When we take a remedy of any kind, does it do something in us we cannot do for ourselves? In choosing to follow the treatment plan, have we created the plan? Is it in our own human strength that we are enabled to follow through with the plan? And if you're not sure, it's not. The Holy Spirit works to convict your mind with truth in ways that you can comprehend, and the Holy Spirit will leave you free to choose to embrace and apply the truth or reject it. That's your choice. Embrace and apply or choose. Only when you choose the truth, I choose it, and, and, and apply it, then you are filled with power, divine power, sufficient to follow through the task. But you don't get divine power until you make the choice. And many people wait for the power before they make the choice. But it doesn't work that way. We're given enlightenment and wisdom and conviction, and then we're left free to choose. When we choose, then we have access to divine power to strengthen us to overcome whatever the besetting problems in our life is. So do we save ourselves? Absolutely not. But is there a work for us to do in our salvation? That's why the apostle says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, it makes perfect sense under this model. It makes no sense under that model. Yes, Wendell. Less, less comment. If we trust God, we'll act like we do. If essentially Paul and James, if we trust God, we'll act like we do trust him. Yes, so, so another way to, to, to say this works thing, can God save a person against that person's will? Can a person be saved on their own without God? It's a cooperative God has provided everything necessary without any human involvement for salvation, but we must choose to cooperate and partake and participate. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are immensely beautiful, amazing, your character, your law of love, the way you run your universe, and that you are so patient with us. Lord, sometimes we're so dull. We ask that your Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth and love, will fill our hearts and lighten our minds. Help the synapses to connect and the, and the neurons to branch out and the neural network to expand, that we can have deeper understanding of your kingdom and, and that we can be more effective in promoting these truths to others. Give us a heart that loves you and loves others, that we can do it in a gracious way, and that soon you will come. We pray in your holy name. Amen.